Returning to our series in Exodus, we come this morning to Exodus chapter 27. Our complementary passage is John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. So if you'd open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 10, in honor of God's Word, please stand. John's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning in verse 7, hear God's word. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life. And have it abundantly. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 27. Continuing in the reading of God's word. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles should be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length from the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the cord on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the cord on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 yards long, 20 cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars And with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. 
in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we pray that as we have read, you would open our eyes to the beauty of your word and of the Christ who is revealed in it. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So roughly every January, there's a massive amount of Christians who begin their I'm going to read through the Bible this year program. And that reading through the Bible in a year program often hits a roadblock right about in here. Right about when we talk about 10 cubits and 20 cubits and 15 and cubits and high and linen and twine and thread and rings and all this stuff, we start going, why? What is this? And our minds get distracted. And next thing you know, we've dropped our read through the Bible in a year program. It's understandable. It's understandable. I want to again emphasize to you that the way to understand these verses in particular, this section of God's Word in particular, is ask yourself this question. Is God giving you the blueprints for how to build your own tabernacle? No then why are these verses here? What is the point if it's not clear instruction for how you should build a tabernacle? Well, hopefully we all agree, these are not clear instructions for how you should build a tabernacle. Then it must be telling us something about God. It must be telling us something about salvation it must be telling us something about our place in God's world and how to walk accordingly. Now, there is a common desire in all men, all women, all of humanity, a desire to return to the garden, to this place where we are in harmony, perfect harmony with God, to this place where we are at perfect harmony with the creation. The lions don't eat the lambs. The thorns don't exist on the rose bushes. We want that place of harmony and of peace. And I think so many of our towers of Babel that we build are our attempts to achieve that. We can achieve harmony. We can achieve peace. We can achieve prosperity. If only we follow this economic model. If only we follow this political figure. If only this, if only that. And yet, don't they all fall short? The lies that you and I buy about you can find happiness if only you drive this car, if only you lose that extra 15 pounds, 
If only you dress this way. If only you have these friends and these connections. And don't they all fall just a little hollow? Don't we always find ourselves grasping and discovering that it's vanity? It's vanity of vanity. All is vanity. And yet there's something in us. There's something in us that is unfulfilled, that is recognizing this is not right, that we need to get back to the garden. Now here, the children of Israel have this setup. We've been looking at it over the past few chapters of the Ark of the Covenant, and the mercy seat, and the lampstand, and the bread of presence. And now today we come to the outer portion of the tabernacle, and you see the walls, the curtains around the tabernacle, the the uh, altar that is there at the very front of the tabernacle, and the lamp that is to be burning. And I want to approach this passage not in the order that it's given to us. It's given to us in the order of the bronze altar, the tabernacle curtains, and then the oil. I want to approach it as you would if you were walking in. If you were the normal Israelite, if you were the average Israelite, and you were looking at this thing that is absolutely at the center of your national identity, they camp around the tabernacle. The tribes are ordered in the, in, the, in the order in which they camp around the tabernacle. This is at their heart. And if you were the average Israelite, you're plodding along in your wilderness journey, the dust is kicking up, and, and it's been a long, hot day in the desert, and finally you come to the place where you're going to camp for a while, what are you going to be looking at? You're just going to be looking at the tapestries. That's all you'll ever see. Did you notice they're 15 cubits high? A cubit is roughly the measurement from the tip of your finger to the elbow. It's about 18 inches. So as a rough thing, you can say these curtains around the tabernacle are about 20 to 25 feet tall. The average Israelite never sees Anything that Moses is describing here. All of the, the, the mercy seat, the cherubim, the, the lampstand, the bread of presence, all of that is hidden for us behind this enormous 20 to 25 foot tall curtain that we will never go on the other side of. The closest we'll get is if I bring an ox, or I bring a sheep, or I bring a ram to the priest, I'll walk up to the bronze altar. This thing is eight feet long, eight feet wide, and five feet tall. That's a big altar. And it is the most prominent Thing in the courtyard. There's only one other thing in that courtyard. We don't even see it here in this passage. It's the, it's the basin of washing. 
But that bronze altar stands right there square in the middle so that the average person walking up with his sacrifice, that's what the person sees. Eight feet tall, eight feet deep, five, or eight feet wide, eight feet deep, five feet tall. It's a big altar. And that's what the average person is going to see of the entire worship complex is that altar. So what's God saying? What's the point? Well, as I, as I said at the beginning, I think we all have built in us, wired into our DNA, the awareness that we belong in Eden, and this is not it. This is not the world at peace and harmony with God as it was designed to be. This is not what Eden is. And the tabernacle is completely built on that principle of Eden. That principle of perfect harmony with God. Of perfect harmony with the creation. Where does perfect harmony with God... And where does perfect harmony with fellow man find its laser focus point? Where does it look to and what does it grow out of? It looks to and it grows out of the mercy seat. That place where God covers over the punishment of death. How does it look? It's communion with God. That fellowship table of presence. What is the church called to be? There's the lampstand, the tree of life in in physical form, in artistic form. And the lampstand that then becomes the symbol of the mission of the church or the message of the church. This place where the high priest goes. You'll notice in verse 13 of chapter 27, the front of the tabernacle is to the east. Now, why would this be significant? Why would this little detail make you stop and go, huh, isn't that interesting? Well, because, if you'll remember, the entire Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are written as Moses is preparing the people to go into the Promised Land. They're camped at the plains of Moab. The tabernacle's been built at least 40 years ago. The tabernacle has been around for a while when we first read these verses. So so Moses is telling the people about this structure that has been at the center of their entire life. He's describing it to them. And what he describes is nothing less than the Garden of Eden. If you'll remember, back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, in chapter 3, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That lampstand, that tree of life, there's a barrier. You can't just walk back in there. We cannot just simply get back to the garden. No politics, no economics, no friend group. <laughs> Nothing is going to fulfill that need that we have to be at peace with God, reconciled to God, at peace with one another. You've got to come through the way that God has built. And that flaming sword, that, that cherubim with the flaming sword that says to mankind, if you try to get back in here, you're dead. Now God makes a way. In the tabernacle, He makes a way. Yes, that way is barred. There is a gate there. You saw that in verse 13. There is a gate barring the way. But it's not an angel with a flaming sword. Rather, it's a curtain behind which lies a place of sacrifice. Behind which lies a place of mercy. This altar, this first piece of furniture that you see immediately as you enter into the court, is the only access to the Holy of Holies. It is the only way in which we come to God. God makes a way. He makes a way to come back in to Eden. He makes a way to come back to this place of harmony and of reconciliation. Again, the title of this message is taken right out of verse 8. According to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But you've heard me hit this several times because Moses repeats this phrase again and again and again. The pattern is a copy of the reality. Where is the reality? Well, it's in heaven. The tabernacle itself is a picture of heaven, of this heavenly reality. But the Garden of Eden itself is a picture of this heavenly reality, this perfect communion with God and this perfect communion with one another. But another interesting thing is we read Exodus. We need to read it in a couple of different ways. The first is, from its original audience, what would the average Israelite have understood from this passage? And what the average Israelite would have understood from this passage is, you can't get to God on your own. You're not allowed to walk into God's presence casually. You must have a blood sacrifice. You need someone to intercede for you. 
You need someone and a lot of some things to stand between you and the holiness of God. That's what the average Israelite would have seen. I think it's legitimate to say the average Israelite would have followed what Moses is doing in giving us the Garden of Eden and in giving us that exact template in the tabernacle. I think they would have seen that connection between the Garden of Eden. But remember also the context in which the average Israelite is living. So, quick diversion for you. I wonder how many of you are aware, you may be following the news, you may know that at the United Nations this week, various world leaders have been addressing the the gathering, the representatives of all the other nations. Are you aware that the Prime Minister of Armenia spoke this week? And maybe you are. If you are, great. You're one of the one percenters. (laughs) Are you aware that as we speak, Azerbaijan is once again invading Armenia? You may not have been. I mean, we're all worried about the Ukraine war and, and Russia and its invasion. Azerbaijan has invaded Armenia for the second time in two years. And the president of Armenia stood before the United Nations and says, listen, all we're asking is that Azerbaijan come up with a country dividing line. Come up with something that they will say, okay, that's Armenia, this is Azerbaijan. And as long as they refuse to recognize a border, they're always going to be seeking to invade us. Now, all of that you would be excused if you did not know. Frankly, the only reason I happen to know it is because we've got a very dear friend who's Armenian. And I tend to follow that sort of stuff because I have a connection to it. Now, let me flip the narrative. How many people in Azerbaijan do you think could tell you who the President of the United States is? Probably most of them. (laughs) How many people in Azerbaijan could tell you who our former President was? I bet all of them. Do you have any idea who the current President of Azerbaijan is? I don't. (laughs) Who is the big political figure that is going to be overshadowing everything in the day in which Moses is writing. Egypt. Egypt is the thing. Egypt is the United States of their day. Everybody in Israel can tell you about Pharaoh. Pharaoh probably doesn't have a hot clue who the people in Israel are, other than they're a bunch of obnoxious slaves that ran away and the, the sea crashed in on his entire army and he, he got destroyed and all that. But Israel is not on the front pages of ancient times. Egypt is. And so what does Pharaoh do every single morning when he wakes up? First thing of his day, he walks down to the River Nile with all of his priests beside him He pours a libation into the water of the Nile River, and then as his brother Ra 
rises over the horizon, he greets his brother. This is my brother Ra. This is my older brother. This is the river of life. This very Egypt is under my protection and the protection of Ra. So that's the, that's the political reality. That's the context in which these words are written. Now look again at verse 13. The gate to the tabernacle is on the east side. Do you see that? The front that is on the east side. What that means is that while Pharaoh is entering into his ritual facing the east, the Israelite is turning his back on Ra and walking to Jehovah God. Even in the placement of the tabernacle, turning against what the world would say is important, turning against what God declares to be His tool, not our God. Turning against that and setting our face towards Jehovah God and Eden. In fact, the further we walk in this direction, the further away we get from Eden. That altar, that place that would bar us from the very presence of God, now becomes the place in which we find access to God. Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he speaks about idolatry and he says, how can you who take the cup of blessing, how can you who eat the bread of fellowship have any part with demons? When you participate in idolatry, you're eating the bread of demons themselves. Or to put it into our terms, or the tabernacle terms, You can't walk in two directions at the same time. That's the bottom line. You cannot move in two directions simultaneously. You will cling to Ra or you will cling to Jehovah God. But you can't cling to both of them. You've got to turn your back on one or the other. We've got the tabernacle, this place that reminds us that we're not in Eden. We are in the wilderness. We've got the altar, this place that says, come, come and be reconciled. Then thirdly and finally, just like a little blip at the end of chapter 27, we've got that eternal flame. Just how does this fit with the narrative? How does this fit with the architecture? I mean, we've moved very clearly, very carefully from the Holy of Holies and what's there to the holy place. It's referred in our text as the tent of meeting. The holy place, and we've seen the showbread and the lampstand. And then we moved out to the altar And then we moved out beyond that to the tabernacle and the curtains and everything hanging around. And then we bounced back all the way in 
to the tabernacle meeting. Is Moses just a bad writer? Was he like, oh, stink, I forgot something important. Here, here, jot that, jot that down here real quick at the end. Or is there a progression? Is there a progression that Moses is giving us? I think obviously there is. Once you see Eden, once you see what Moses is giving you, once you see this place of perfect harmony from which we have been banished, from which we are removed, this place where God dwells in holiness, where the priests eat the communion meal of peace and fellowship, where the tree of life is found, the altar that goes that, that, that is the sign of, of the sacrificial death through which we gain access to this place. Once you see all of this, what makes it an interesting literary structure or what makes you fall on your knees? What's the difference? Because I think the literature is fascinating. I love, I, you, you know me enough, I, I love to see these themes. I love the pictures. I love the literature that Moses is giving us here, that God is giving us through Moses. I love to see these threads and these connections, and they are beautiful and glorious. So is that it? Do we just go, ooh, cool, beautiful, glorious, wow, you know, all these cubits and rings and bronze and stuff, I didn't realize. There's a lot there. Interesting. Let's pack it up and go home now. You see, without the work of the Holy Spirit, this is just interesting literature. Without that work of the Spirit in your life, without that work of the Spirit in the life of the church, this is just interesting pictures, fascinating concepts, beautiful, overarching themes, but it's not life. It's not your breath. It's not what you must have lest you die. As you would cling to the hem of Christ's garment, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the light that is shining there in the very midst of God's presence. We're seeing the Trinity in its picture form. The holiness of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit bringing holiness and life and light into the dark world. I think there's tons of areas of application. I think there's tons of areas of application that could legitimately come from this text. But I want to leave you with one that I think is probably, at least for me, the most significant to our day and time. And I want you to hear me very, very carefully. If what we see in Exodus chapter 27, but elsewhere, if what we see is truly at the very heart of who God wants you to be and who God wants me to be, 
then our lives are a series of yes or no's. Are you outside the tabernacle or are you inside the tabernacle? Yes or no? Are you coming by way of the altar or are you coming by way of your own merit? Yes or no? Paul takes this up in Ephesians, which we read as our assurance of pardon. And he says, are you a Jew or are you a Gentile is meaningless now. That makes no sense. If you understand what the true yes or no question is of life, beloved, I don't care. I don't care if you are a cisgender, white, upper middle class male, if you're burning in hell. And I don't care if you identify as a squirrel with a bushy tail. You are a man, a woman made in God's image, and you're either reconciled to Eden or you're not. That's the yes or no. And Paul very clearly makes that point. He makes that point extremely clearly that Christ Jesus has broken down this wall of division. All that tabernacle curtain, poof, gone. There's no curtain anymore. All that, the, the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, gone, ripped in two by God himself on the cross, tore it from top to bottom. So that you and I are the temple. The church is the temple of God. Being built up together, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The whole body growing up together into a holy temple. And I'm sorry, but that's the most basic foundational question. Are you the temple or are you not the temple? If you are a squirrel with a bushy tail identifying individual and are clinging to Christ, then you are more my squirrel <laughs> than the person who looks just like me, walks in just my shoes, and doesn't identify with Christ because this is where we hit the core reality. This is where we hit what is real life. Are you in the garden or not? Beloved, the message of the gospel is that all of these things, the mercy seat, the ark of the covenant, the, the, the altar, all of these things we can see so clearly are pictures of Jesus Christ. He claims it himself throughout the New Testament. We see it constantly as we read the New Testament. The bottom line for you and for me is are we there? If we're there, if we recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain on that altar, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the, the light who takes away the sin of the world. If we realize that Jesus Christ is the gold 
on the mercy seat that the cherubim peer into, if we realize that Jesus Christ has accomplished all of these things and invites you and me into this reality, how much is that going to make all of our superficial differences irrelevant? How much, how much are you and I really going to focus on silly, man-made distinctions and find our identity in those things? Beloved, the tabernacle is both an encouragement, but it's a rebuke. It really is. It is a rebuke. And it's a rebuke to me and to any of you who would ever find your identity in anything other than Jesus Christ being united to him, being his child, and living out the implications of that in every area of my life. Jesus changes everything. And the tabernacle is absolutely that visual demonstration of that. The writer of the New Testament repeatedly, over and over again, says, we've come to something better. All of these things that the tabernacle pictures for us, we've come to the reality 